Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Welcome to the podcast, and hello to our newest listeners in South Africa and Hong Kong. Hey, glad to have you. At a Bible conference several years ago, Pastor Warren Wiersbe described a philosopher as being like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there, and he finds it. One writer humorously wrote, being a philosopher, I have a problem for every solution. Whether or not we've ever studied philosophy, the majority of us are probably familiar with the names of famous philosophers in ancient Greece, men like Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. Whatever we might think about philosophy, there's no denying that those men were intelligent thinkers. And whether we agree or disagree with their conclusions, there was also a thread of humility. It was Socrates who said, and I quote, if I know one thing, it's that I know nothing. He also said, the only true wisdom is in knowing that you know nothing. Obviously, his point wasn't that we don't know anything, but rather that what we do know is very little in comparison to what we don't know. Aristotle said something similar. He said, the more you know, the more you realize that you don't know. In our series through the Epistles of John, titled Authentic Christianity, we've consistently touched on one of the main heresies and false teachings at the end of the first century that John was confronting in these letters, the teaching of Gnosticism. Now, we've spent plenty of time talking about some of the heresies associated with the Gnostics, and we've been down that road. But what I wanted to remind you of is that the terms themselves, Gnosticism and Gnostic, are derived from the same Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And so, one of the false claims of the Gnostics was that they possessed a special elite spiritual knowledge that others did not have. They claimed to be enlightened and to know certain things, but not surprisingly, they were arrogant, and what they claimed to know was nothing more than false teaching that contradicted Scripture. So in reality, they knew nothing. Much of what John had written up to this point in 1 John exposed their false teachings and enlightened knowledge as heresy. Here now in the final verses of 1 John, he closes out this letter by confirming and encouraging our confidence as Christian believers in what we do know. The Greek verb translated know, such as John's phrase that you may know, is used 15 times by him in this letter. When a believer says, I know I'm forgiven and going to heaven, that's not arrogance or presumption like the Gnostics. That's a Christian believing and trusting in the promise of God in Scripture. Our confidence is not in ourselves, it's in Christ and what he's done for us. How confident would you feel if you were on board an airplane and the pilot's voice came over the intercom saying, welcome ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. I'm not really sure what all these knobs, buttons, levers, and instruments mean up here in the cockpit, but it doesn't matter, we're going to do our best to get you to your destination. Or the surgeon who says, 
We're not exactly sure where your appendix is located, so we're going to just start cutting up here and then we'll see where that leads us. Or the guy on the bomb squad who says to his partner, I think we're supposed to cut the red wire. We want to have confidence and we want to absolutely know for certain. Well, here now in verses 13 to 21 of 1 John 5, as he wraps up this letter, the word know is used seven times. John's goal in closing out this letter is to give us confidence in the things that we truly know as believers. And so the title of this message then is, What Christians Know. In our last message, we had camped out in 1 John 5.13, and if you don't mind, let's go back there and let's start from that point as we move forward through the final nine verses of this letter. Keep your ears and eyes open for the word no, and let's pick up our reading now in verse 13, please. John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, our points will be pretty straightforward, and under our message title, What Christians Know, we begin in verse 13. This is what we know. Number one, we have eternal life. Since our entire last message was centered in this verse, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it right now, but genuine believers can have the confidence and the assurance and know that they have eternal life. If you are saved, you are saved forever. So how do you know if you're saved? Let me share four witnesses with you. Number one, the witness of the word. God's inspired word assures us that if we've trusted Jesus by grace through faith alone, then we are saved and we have eternal life. There's also the witness in our heart. In other words, when you read the Bible, does God speak to you? When you come among God's people, do you feel at home with the family? When you come to worship, does it lift up your heart towards God? When you hear bad news, do you trust God and pray? Thirdly, there's the witness of other believers. Other Christians will recognize the change in your heart from, as a result of your conversion, and they'll see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And then lastly, there's the witness of the Holy Spirit. Are you convicted when you sin? Are you empowered when you pray? Do you witness in God's power and strength? Well, next now in verses 14 and 15, we know, secondly, God hears our prayers. When you stop and think about it, prayer is an interesting part of the Christian life. 
Comedian Lily Tomlin asks the question, why is it that when we talk to God, it's called praying, but when God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia? Some believers have wondered, if God is sovereign, he knows all things, and his will's going to be done, then why do we even bother praying? Actually, that's not an unreasonable question. Let me give you five quick reasons why Christians are instructed to pray in Scripture. You might want to jot these down. Number one, communication. Prayer is the way we talk to God. God speaks to us primarily through his word, and then we speak to God through prayer. And of course, every meaningful relationship requires back and forth ongoing communication. If there were no prayer, there would be no communication from the Christian to the Lord. In Jeremiah 29, 12, God says, You will call upon me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. The psalmist wrote, I love the Lord because he hears and answers my prayers. Secondly, then, a reason for praying is dependence. Prayer demonstrates our dependence and trust in God. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, His example or model prayer included several petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins and deliver us from the evil one. All of those petitions and requests come from the believer who is dependent upon the Father and is trusting in him. And so here's another point of application or an important point of application that's gonna, well, it might sting for some of you. The more you pray, the more you're depending on God. The less you pray, the less you are depending on God. Corrington Boom put it this way, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Thirdly, we pray because it teaches us obedience. A faithful and consistent prayer life is part of living in obedience to God's exhortation. For example, pray without ceasing, as well as to worry about nothing and pray about everything. What breathing is to us physically, praying to us, for us, is, is the same thing spiritually. And let's not overlook the fact that during his life on earth, Jesus spent much of his time praying to the Father in heaven. Along with that, the Holy Spirit prays for us, as Paul wrote in Romans 8.26, and Jesus prays for us, as we read in Hebrews 7.25. God prays for us here on earth, and we need to pray to him in heaven. A fourth reason why we pray is it teaches us to surrender. As the sinless Son of God, Jesus gives us the example of being surrendered in prayer. He often spoke of how he had come to do the will of the Father. And then at that very critical moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before going to the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father and said, Not my will, but your will be done. Prayer is much more than submitting our needs to God. It's surrendering ourselves to him. And then fifthly, faith. Ultimately, prayer in the form of communication, dependence, obedience, and surrender brings us to a place of trusting God by faith. As it's been well said, prayer is not getting our will done on earth. It's getting God's will done in heaven which is in essence what we read in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The illustration has been shared of a man being in a boat adrift at sea, and as he passes by a shore, he throws his rope from the boat to the shore, and it catches on. As he pulls on the rope then, is he pulling the shore to himself, 
or is he pulling himself to the shore? In the same way, prayer is us taking hold of God and pulling ourselves towards him. Well, let's stay in verse 15 for a moment. The next thing that we know is that we have what we ask for. We're still talking about prayer. We have what we ask for. God delights to hear us pray, and when we're praying in God's will, he delights to give us what we ask for. I love this story. One day, a man made an enormous request of General Napoleon Bonaparte, and to the amazement of his entire army, that request was granted. Napoleon was then asked, why did you grant such a monumental request to that man? Napoleon replied, he honored me by the magnitude of his requests. Isn't that great? Likewise, God is honored and pleased when we pray big requests by faith. Now, listen, for the unsafe person or even for the immature believer who thinks that God is a genie in a bottle granting us our wishes, verse 14 makes it clear that God is hearing and granting the prayer requests that are, quote, according to his will. Coming to verses 16 and 17, John is still on the subject of prayer and the will of God as he talks about praying for believers in sin. This is a very interesting couple of verses that has really confused Bible students, but it's all connected to the subject of prayer. John instructs us to pray for the backslidden believer whose sin will not lead to physical death, but in contrast, to not pray for the backslidden believer whose sin is leading them towards physical death. Well, of course, the obvious question we want to ask is, how are we supposed to know the difference? Kenneth Wiest, the renowned New Testament Greek scholar who is now with the Lord, he was professor of New Testament Greek studies at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. He was one of the translators of the New American Standard Bible Translation, and he wrote a very helpful four-volume set titled Word Studies in the Greek New Testament. I have that in my library, a very helpful tool. He was a top authority in understanding the New Testament in its original language. So this is what Dr. Kenneth Wiest wrote about these two verses that we're looking at, and I quote. He said, I confess to my inability to understand these verses. These verses are an enigma to me, and I will not even attempt to offer a suggestion as to its proper interpretation. All I can say is thank you, Dr. Wiest, for your honesty. The wise Greek New Testament scholar says, hey, your guess is as good as mine. But before we simply walk away from these verses, scratching our head, saying that we can't understand them, there's something to glean here. There is sin which leads to physical death. Now, please don't ask me what I think that is because I don't know. And please don't try and get a hold of me to tell me what you think it is because you don't know either. Based on the whole of Scripture, it seems that John is not identifying a specific sin, like, say, I don't know, adultery or murder. Instead, John seems to be saying that when intentional and rebellious sins pile up and they reach a point of no return, God may discipline that believer with physical death. In other words, to take them home to heaven and to keep them from continuing in sin. It's an act of mercy, if you will. The Apostle John, who wrote these words, was there when Ananias and his wife Sapphira lied about their giving to the church, and they were guilty of hypocrisy. That's in Acts chapter 5, in the early days of the church. And God, in his perfect righteousness, disciplined them both by striking them dead. 
But if lying and hypocrisy always led to death, then all the churches would be empty and all the cemeteries would be full. So clearly there were other factors that contributed to God taking the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. Another example is 1 Corinthians 11. Some of the believers were coming to the communion table. They were drunk and guilty of gluttony. And so Paul warned them that as a result, some of them were sick and others had died because they defiled the Lord's table. So here in verse 16, John says, there is a sin leading unto death, but apart from a word of knowledge from the Lord, I can't tell you how we're supposed to know when not to pray for a believer in sin or when to. So we pray for them, unless the Lord somehow directs us otherwise. Well, coming to verse 18, the next thing that we know as believers is that Christians don't sin. Now listen, if you're new to this series of studies in 1 John, or if you're new to the Christian faith, please don't jump up in a panic. As we discussed back in chapter 3, this wording translated from the Greek means that believers don't sin habitually, continuously, and intentionally as their ongoing lifestyle. Clearly, every person sins, and that includes Christians. But not only is the Christian forgiven by God of their sins, they are a new creation in Christ, and so their sin is not habitual, intentional, continuous way of living. God not only gives us victory over sin, the Holy Spirit also gives us power over sin so that sin does not have to control us. Therefore, John writes that we're absolutely certain that the genuine believer who is born again does not practice sin like that. There is an important truth that John emphasizes many times in this epistle. It doesn't matter how much a person professes to being a Christian, their lifestyle practice demonstrates their true life. Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. Only God can judge a person's heart and where they're at spiritually. But it is pretty safe to say that a person claiming to be a Christian who lives in habitual, ongoing sin without repentance or the effort or desire to change, by their actions, demonstrates that they don't belong to God. And we must not forget the warning of Jesus in Matthew 7 that many on the day of judgment will speak to Jesus about all the wonderful religious things that they've done, but Jesus will turn them away saying, I never knew you, or that is to say, you were never saved. Let's say you have a friend who tells you they're starting a very strict diet of exercise and healthy eating so they can lose some weight. Then two days later, you bumped into them and they're holding a chocolate-covered waffle cone filled with four scoops of ice cream in it. And there's ice cream all over their face. So you say, hey, I thought you told me you were going on a strict diet. And they respond, why are you judging me? You don't know my heart. Obviously, the actions speak louder than the words and they speak for themselves. And so it is for people claiming to be Christians while living in habitual sin. When it comes to salvation, God doesn't grade on the curve. He grades on the cross. We can know that the genuine believer doesn't live like that. And at the same time, God doesn't allow the wicked one to touch us. Now, we don't want to misunderstand this either. The, def the devil will definitely harass us, accuse us, and tempt us, but the devil cannot touch us or literally in the Greek, lay hold of us. This is the same word used in the Gospels to describe Mary Magdalene at the tomb on Resurrection Sunday morning. 
when she finally realized that it was Jesus standing there in front of her and not the gardener, she grabbed hold of Jesus, prompting him to say, do not cling to me. Before salvation, we were in the clutches of Satan and he had a firm hold on us. But now in Christ, Jesus has a firm hold on us and the wicked one can't touch us. Remember what John wrote in the last chapter, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Well, moving forward, we come to verse 19 and to the next thing that we know, we belong to God. If you have been saved by grace through faith alone, then you can know with absolute certainty and confidence that you belong to God. John describes the two classes of people on earth, those who belong to God and then the rest of the world, which lies under the sway and influence of Satan. Here in verse 19, you'll notice that the words under the sway of are italicized. They're in italics. Whenever you see that in your Bible, the translators are indicating that those words are not in the manuscripts verbatim, but it's definitely what the original language is implying and saying. The translators do an excellent job then of giving us the sense of these words. Another sense of those same words under the sway of would be in the lap of. So verse 19 could also be translated, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. That's quite a picture. The unsaved world does not realize or recognize that Satan is holding them in his arms, rocking them to sleep spiritually like a baby and leading them right into everlasting judgment. As I've shared before, we are living in a time where Satan doesn't even hide anymore. He's out in plain sight, and yet the world still can't see him. As Christians, then, we need to be reminded that the vast majority of people that we cross paths with on a daily basis are in the lap of Satan, and they don't even know it. So we pray for them, and we look for opportunities to share Jesus with them. Many of us have watched those nature programs where animals are hunting other animals. I know that it's all part of the animal kingdom and survival of the fittest and all that, but remember, it's also because of the curse. So we see lions in Africa hunting other animals like gazelles. We watch the lions surrounding them and lying in wait in the tall grass, and those poor gazelle, they're just grazing completely unaware of the enemy lurking in the background. Or we see a baby buffalo lapping up water at a river shoreline, unaware that a giant crocodile is just underneath the surface of the water, about to leap out and turn him into a BLT, a buffalo lettuce and tomato sandwich. When I see those shows, I want to yell at the TV, watch out, get out of here. Now, if we feel that way about the African animals, how much more should we want to warn unsaved people that God brings into our lives? In verse 20, the next thing we know is that Jesus has come and he's given us an understanding. He's given us an understanding. This phrase refers to an understanding of who Jesus is, the Son of God, the only Savior, of what the gospel message is, and of how to be saved through Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Also in verse 20, we know that God is true. The Greek word means that God is genuine in contrast to all of the false gods that are being worshipped and followed today, which explains what John means in his final sentence in this letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Devote yourself fully to following the true God and keep yourself away from false idols. That's the context of what John wrote. 
And remember, John was living at those last days of his life after he had been released from uh, the island of Patmos where he was a prisoner. He ended up back in Ephesus. And there at the end of the first century, it was a large port city filled with idolatry. Front and center was the famous Temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That huge temple was supported by 127 columns, and each one was about 200 feet tall. Coins were even minted with the words Diana of Ephesus, and souvenir shrines were big business. According to Acts 19, sorcery and magic were also widespread in Ephesus. All of that is to say that idolatry, sorcery, and magic were predominant there in Ephesus when John wrote these words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry still persists in many places around the world. I read about a man who traveled to China and his tour group visited one of the temples that was filled with idols. When he got there, he saw a throng of worshipers taking pieces of paper, writing something down, and then mixing those papers into a ball of mud. Then he witnessed those worshipers throwing their mud balls at the idols, and so he asked his guide what was going on. The guide responded, these people are writing out their prayer request to God. If the mud ball sticks to the statue, their God hears their prayer. If it does not stick, their God does not hear their prayer. Oh my. As one writer put it, and I quote, mankind is stark raving mad. He cannot make a worm, and yet he persists in making gods by the dozens. That's unfortunately true. Most people in the U.S. today are, not, are too much, are too intelligent, I should say, and too sophisticated to worship an actual idol. However, an idol is anything that a person seeks, honors, or exalts more than God. As Chuck Swindoll said, anything with a price tag can become an idol. It can be your possessions, your career, your business, your hobbies, your family, your free time, just about anything else that's more important than God. That's why D.L. Moody rightly said, Satan doesn't care what we worship just as long as we don't worship God. Well, we've talked about assurance and confidence and what we know as believers, and we're reminded of that beloved hymn, Blessed Assurance, written by Fanny Crosby. I love that hymn. Fanny wrote the lyrics to thousands of hymns and gospel songs during her lifetime, and she lived to be 95 years old. What's even more amazing, though, is that Fanny Crosby was blind. The music for the hymn, Blessed Assurance, was actually composed by a close friend of Fanny's. One day, Fanny was visiting that friend. The friend played the music on her piano, and then she asked Fanny, what do you think this tune is saying? Fanny immediately responded, this is what I hear, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. If I were to sum up the words of John in our passage tonight, I'd also say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And so until our next podcast, may the Lord bless you. <music>